Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everybody. Go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome. Good to see you all. Yes, I'm wearing shorts. We get it. It's a big deal to see my legs. Yeah, shorts on stage. So much of a lack of authority now, you know? How long have we been friends and you didn't know that, that, that they existed? <laughs> um, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, if you're totally weirded out, my apologies if this is your first time. My name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here. Um, we're in a series right now called uh, For the Sake of the World. So, you know, the bigger vision for our, our church this year um, is uh, from the th- throne flows a river of renewal. We've been thinking about what, is it, what does it mean for us, like, as we've gathered around our allegiance to King Jesus, to kind of pivot and to see how does that actually uh, affect the rest of the world. And today, one of the things I want to do in that specifically is to redeem the idea of evangelism. And automatically, everybody's like, oh, God, evangelism. And that you're right, because... Uh, it's something that's gotten a bit of a nasty rap over the past 50 years or so. We were even talking about it in our community group on Thursday that a lot of times the imagery that we have is the people downtown standing on the soapbox yelling at everybody that they're going to go to hell for going to the clubs or whatever, whatever they do down there, you know. And um, for the, especially for those of us who are millennials, our primary value in life is authenticity. And we're very, very keyed in on what is inauthentic. And so we see that as inauthentic. But we often don't know what to replace it with. We don't know what is authentic. So we can, it's, it's very easy to do, and I love doing it, like trashing the things of Christianity that are inauthentic and not real. And those people that are proselytizing and going, that's, that's garbage. That's not the true gospel, which, sure, great. But what are we actually talking about? Like what, it doesn't mean, just because we know what's wrong, it doesn't mean that we automatically know what is right. And so I think a lot of times we actually feel rather lost when it comes to this idea of evangelism. And that's one of these things that I think we need to renew our vision of. The other uh, version of evangelism that we have uh, from the modern era in, in kind of modern evangelical church is um, evangelism means that you bring your friend to church, your pagan friend, and they sit here, and then it's my job to evangelize them, okay? Um, that's not my job. I'm, in fact, I'm not good at it. I've told many of you, I don't have a lot of time for pagans. I'm too busy trying to save the church. I like them a lot. They're, they're lovely people. It's just, I'm not, I'm, that's not my job. It's actually your job. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's your job. You know, someone recently asked me, like, at the core, what are we talking about when we say evangelism? If it's not proselytizing and it's not getting people just signed up for programs or handing them off to the professional Christians that you don't have the time or the discipline to be, what are we actually talking about? And I believe that every gift, every vocation in the church is an expression of the redemptive love of God. That's what evangelism is. It's to present somebody with a loving encounter that brings them closer to God. That's what evangelism is at its core. The word means to share the good news, to proclaim the good news of Christ, and to demonstrate that love to people who maybe don't know it. And that's your job. Like, that's, the per- that's your purpose. That's your role. So in a way, we're all called to evangelize. Some of us might have a gift of evangelism, and that's kind of our primary best contribution to the work of the church. But we're all to some degree called to do that, to present the redemptive love of God to the world around us. And so what we're going to be looking at today is a passage in Matthew chapter 10, which is one of my absolute favorite portions of Matthew. And to see how Jesus uh, takes his 12 disciples and is presenting them with this opportunity to begin to go out into the world uh, and to practice these kinds of things that they had watched him doing for a while. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to read uh, beginning Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, so Heavenly Father, we, we, we do testify the truth that you're here and that you are close to us. Lord, it's so easy for us to forget that or to think that that's some sort of uh, mundane constant. But Lord, I pray that we would be uh, a people who are so in awe of the fact that you are 
constantly near us, that you are for us, that you turn curses into blessings. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't see moments like this. We wouldn't see Sunday mornings as a mundane obligation, but rather this sacred opportunity to gather together with our family, to worship you, to praise you, to give you thanks, to be bound closer together in this unity that we've been talking about. And Father, I pray today that each of us would be open to hear whatever it is that you uh, want to say to us. Make it personal. Um, bring us into this story that we might see ourselves in the invitation and the challenge that you have for us, Lord. May we let go of our ego. May we let go of our bitterness at seeing these things done poorly. And may we take up that challenge to do better, to do better than the generations that came before us, to do better than uh, whatever our church of origin might be, to do better than the people on the street that we love to wag our finger at uh, because we feel superior to them. May we actually go out and, do, and just do this better because we love you. And we want to be obedient to what it is that you're commanding us to. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 10. So right at the end of chapter 9, uh, there's this beautiful little portion where Jesus, he, it says he looks out uh, and has compassion over the sheep because they seem helpless. And he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the field. And that's kind of the transitional point. So this is Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Or as we've said a lot of times in our church, the new reality of God is so close that you can practically touch it. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, You'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. And at that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So how do you get arrested for the gospel? Let's talk about that. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what is actually happening here. So this is a, I really, this is a fascinating, it's like Jesus gives this little path uh, for these disciples to follow in learning how to go out and to begin to, um, to evangelize, to give, to offer that redemptive love of God to the world. But I think this is what's interesting, right? At the very beginning, just where we see the names, there's this kind of subversive switch um, where it's, the, the passage starts out saying Jesus called his 12 disciples, and then in verse 2, it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. 
And that's the little bit of a pivot because a disciple is considered uh, one who receives, okay? That's just a good way to see as a disciple. Like you, as a disciple of Jesus, you receive from Jesus. That's what you do. Your, your hands are open and you're watching Jesus and you're kind of observing. Maybe you're asking questions, but primarily it's a role of receiving. But then when he calls them apostles, apostle is a word that just means one who is sent. That's all it means. And that's the pivot to being someone who gives, Okay, so we'll always be in a position uh, to receive from King Jesus. Like that's, you will always be a disciple of Jesus. You're always an apostle. Like you can, like you can never receive enough from him, okay? Like your whole life, you're going to be receiving from him. But there comes a time when we're also called to give, to continue our growth, and to advance the kingdom. So up to this point, the 12 were passive watchers. Before Matthew chapter 10, they hardly play a, a role. We see them first called, um, and then they're kind of in the background of all of these things that Jesus is saying and he's doing, and we can assume a significant period of time has gone by. Perhaps they are asking questions. Jesus is interacting with them. Uh, but now's the point in the story where it begins to pivot, and he's saying, okay, now I, need, I want you to go out and to do these same things that I'm doing. And I love the diversity that we have in the 12. Um, we have a couple fishermen. We have a tax collector. We've got two political zealots. And I feel like it's just, it's just even a hint of what's to come in this kingdom reality that it's the diversity that we find in the followers of Jesus that best positions us to be able to love all kinds of people. Like we need all kinds of people in order to love all kinds of people. If we were all the same kind of people, we wouldn't have very much of a reach because we have a very singular view of the love of God that just comes out of a singular person. But like just even in this room, looking at the diversity that I see, you know, the ways in which each of you have encountered God and he's, he's working in your life, the specific kind of fingerprint of God in your story, um, when we go back out into the world and we love people, well, there's a hundred different ways and a hundred different kinds of people that we can love. And I think that that's so key to see as Jesus is gathering his first followers, that there's all of these people that they're not homogenous. It's not just one kind of person that follows Jesus, but that he is big enough and grand enough to bring all of us in without erasing our individual stories or our personalities, um, but, but augmenting it, redeeming those things, and they become the assets that we have uh, to, to go back out and to, to proclaim the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And it's that freely receive and freely give discipleship, apostleship piece that we have. Like I said, with, similar to evangelism, like some of you have a gift of apostleship. Like that is your, you are a spiritual entrepreneur. You are a big picture, big picture, visionary thinker. Like that's who you are. But all of us to some degree are also called to be apostolic, to be outwardly focused, to be thinking about down the road, to be engaging with people in that particular way. And I think this is important to recognize because I think so often, and I think this is especially as a result of consumerism in our society, that we, we get stuck thinking, I, I, if I just have a little bit more, like if I go to one more conference, or if I read one more book by whoever the you know, hot pastor of the hour is, um, maybe that's what's eventually going to qualify me. And I think a lot of us, we sit here for years in church, in that posture of receiving, just waiting for like, once I get the thing, then I'll be able to go out and to do the thing. Um, and I think uh, actually it's when we go out and do the thing, that's the thing that sets us free. Like when you don't feel qualified and you don't feel like you're ready to evangelize, to love, to offer people the redemptive love of God that might draw them in uh, to his family. I think about it as like water. Like if you have a you know, you are this vessel, and if you're kind of, you get, you're waiting to get filled up, filled up, filled up, okay, great, I'm all filled, and then if that water just sits there, what's happens to that water over time? It stagnates, you, and it's, it's just gross, and it, 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 because it's not moving, but it, it's like, we, if we're vessels, we have to allow the love of God to flow through us to keep it fresh, and we realize the more that we allow the water, that water of the love of God to flow through us, the more we're capable of actually receiving, and we're really surprised I think a lot of times what happens when we step out and begin to love people, to offer that love of God to those around us when we don't feel equipped for it. 
Because this kind of speaks to the authority, like what our understanding of authority is in the empire versus what it means in the kingdom. Because our authority in the kingdom does not come from our rank, training, charisma, or experience, but from our compassionate presence. You see, what we find so often in the world is this kind of vision of top-down authority, right? The, the clearest way is the way that our military works. It's like you start at the top and you've got, I'm terrible at military stuff. There's like admirals, I think, and then like generals, and then somebody, 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 somebody else. Petty officers. Why are they so petty? Um, you know, and then you've got your lieutenants and so on, and it, it comes down to, you know, kind of the average grunt. Like that top-down authority, that's kind of how the world works. And a lot of times, unfortunately, what we do is we just impose that into the church. And that's why you find these heresies, really, of like, there's God the Father, and then there's the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, and then there's men, and then there's women, and then there's handicapped people, and then there's children, and then there's gay people. You know, we, like, we bring that top-down authority from the empire, and we impose it on the kingdom. We say, this is like God's plan for authority. You know, it's funny, like I was uh, talking to somebody about this yesterday. Like, there was a period, like a year and a half ago, where I had like six different people in two weeks asked me, like, so... Um, are, are women allowed to preach in your church? And it's like, I've been asked this question forever. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I don't mind. Um, but that, it's still alive today, you know, these, this, this top-down authority understanding, like this militaristic thing. We find it in um, our government. We find it in a lot of, like, workplaces. There's actually this really interesting uh, theory called uh, the, the, the Peters theory of advancement, which means people advance in organizations because of their skill set until they get to a point where they're not actually skilled enough to go farther. And so they just stagnate where they are. So everybody in a position, like especially like government or like a huge corporation, they're at the position they are because they're not good enough, like, which is why things are usually pretty dysfunctional. And that's why like that top-down authority doesn't work. Um, we have a radically different vision of authority when, it, when in the kingdom. Um, because when we continue to impose those empirical notions of, authority, of power and authority into kingdom relationships and vocations, the result is the same kind of pain and disappointment that we often see mirrored in society around us. That's where we hurt women. That's where we devalue children or whatever it might be because we still think of power dynamics in the way that we find in the empire. But what we see in Jesus is that his authority is not based upon this rank or this training or whatever it is, except you know, he was very talented. He was very, very good at what he did. If there's anything that you walk away from today, Jesus was very good at what he did, okay? He was so good at it, he got himself killed. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> like, Jesus' authority was based on this compassionate willingness to get close to us. And in that little piece in Matthew 9, when it says he had compassion, the word in Greek, it means like it hit him in his gut. Like, have you ever seen somebody in pain or someone hurting and like you feel it on that deep level and you're like, I can't not be there for you. Like, I, I just, something is compelling me. That's how Jesus felt all the time. And it wasn't because he had some sort of obligation to fulfill, like, okay, I guess I'll go and preach the kingdom, blah, 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 or I guess I'll just go heal these people. It's like he, f he felt it in his stomach all the time because he was, his heart was so broken open for people. And that was the authority that he had. But for us as cross-shaped people, that's the authority that we're to have as well, that we're to embody this sacrificial love. Like, we are broken open. We can't not go out. But the cool thing is, I think about this passage, is that Jesus doesn't just send us out into the world. Like, just go figure it out. Like, just go throw everything against the wall, see what sticks. Because, again, that's usually where we hurt people. And so we see this little progression when Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't worry about the Samaritans, go first to the lost sheep of Israel. And that's very key. So there's kind of three categories that Jesus offers us. There's Judea or Israel, there's Samaria, and then there's the ends of the earth. So we're going to break it down uh, a little bit. I'm actually going to give you guys time uh, to just spend with the Lord to figure out who are those people to you, okay? So we'll begin with Judea. Your first calling is to the people that are just like you, okay? 
That's always the, the first call, your first calling, the first people that Jesus ever calls you to are the people that are just like you. The writer Anne Lamott, she said, the most powerful sermon you can ever preach is me too. Because there's a certain kind of compassion and again, an authority when you see yourself in somebody else's story and you go, I actually know what that feels like. I actually know what you're experiencing to some degree. So the people that are just like us, our personal Judea, our personal Israel, they may come from a sem similar background. It may be something like they are, you're, they're ethnically similar to you or nationally. Um, but I think the more interesting conversation around our personal Judea um, is those that share that same storyline uh, that you're living out, that they share that same spirit that maybe dominated your life before you really encountered the love of God? Like, is your story a story of rejection? Did you grow up constantly feeling rejected by the people around you? Well, when you allow God to, 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 to minister his love to you, and that love in that spirit of rejection is usually acceptance. Like when you, when you are presented with the acceptance of God, when you turn around, you begin to see other people that have that spirit of rejection. You go, yeah, oh, I know what that feels like but let me show you a better way. We were even talking about it in our community group on Thursday, and y'all, you should have heard Nick Wingard just gushing about Maddie. It, I wish I had filmed it. It was so sweet, and she had her doe eyes looking at him just gush because we were talking about this, right? We were talking about like when you, see, when you know what it feels like to be overlooked, to be rejected, to feel isolated, and you're like, I don't want that to happen to anybody else, and so I'm gonna stand in the gap and I'm going to have special care and attention for those people because I know that story. Like that's the authority that you have. And you're going to carry that calling with you your whole life. That's like kind of ground zero. Like that's your best contribution is when you see that in other people. So for me, for example, like growing up as a pastor's kid, I never knew a time without God. You know, like I, I just, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the faith. I didn't have some radical conversion where I used to be in a bike gang and all these things, you know, like, and I, and I remember like growing up and feeling bad about that. Like how many of you feel bad that your testimony isn't cool? You know, just me. Okay. never mind. There was a thing in the nineties called promise keepers. If anybody remembers promise keepers, nineties things. Yeah. And, uh, but I remember going to one in, in, when we were living in Michigan, I must've been, I don't know, 11, 12, when his breakout session, this guy, he, he shared his story. He's like, I grew up in the church. I've always known God. I've always loved God. I come from a really good family. And he goes, and that's my story. And I'm really proud of it. And he's like, I love hearing the stories of the powerful conversions. He's like, but my story matters too. And if you're in this room and that's your story, I want you to embrace that. And I was like, that was, it was such a relief. You know, I was like, I feel like I need to go sin a little bit more just to have a good testimony. <laughs> Still don't have the motorcycle but it's coming. But I've recognized in my own life, the more that I've done this work and sorting out, like, okay, what is my calling? Like, I'm called to church kids. I'm called to kids who, who never knew a time without God, but it got to some point in their journey and went, there's got to be something more. You know, like, there's got to be more to the faith. There's got to be more to Jesus than this. And I think especially kind of in this era of, you know, this kind of deconstruction move, movement, like there's something within me where I feel like I, I can do that. Like I actually have something to say because like that is really, I'm, I'm really passionate about that because that's part of my story. Like getting to this point, growing up in the church, never knowing anything else and being like, there's got to be something more to this and I need to figure out what that is. I heard this beautiful story recently of, um, a nurse who worked in this hospital, she said she was a rather young nurse and, and her overseer came to her and she said, you, you just, you, there, there's something about your countenance changes when you're, when you're caring for people and you're, you're bandaging them up and you're offering prescription, you're sitting with them, like you're just so tender with it. And she looked at the, her overseer and said, I, it's because I know what it means to suffer extraordinarily, but it's also because I know what it means to be loved extraordinarily. And I think for each of us, that's our, first calling. Who are the people that are just like you? So I'm going to give you three or four minutes. I want you to pull out your phone. I want you to start a note. And I want you to write down, who is my personal Judea? Who are the people that are just like me? And again, like I said, it could be an ethnic group. It could be a national group or a socioeconomic group. But I want you to really consider 
those major themes in your life, when you see somebody living the story that you lived and you feel in your gut because you know what that's like, okay? So I'll give you three or four minutes. Who is your personal Judea? Amen. So your personal Judea, the people that are just like you, that is your primary calling in life that will never change. That's the, the, the center of gravity for your compassionate authority for the kingdom. Um, but there also is going to come a point when Jesus pushes you outside of Judea and, and asks you to go to Samaria, okay? So Samaritans are a really interesting category for Jesus in his era. We're often, we would think of like the story of the good Samaritan, for an example. And what happened, basically Samaritans were kind of like, they were, to the Jews, they were like half-breeds. Like they, they knew Yahweh and they had some of the similar trappings of Judaism, but they got it all wrong. Uh, and what had happened about 400 years prior um, when Israel came back from exile, they realized that they had, a lot of people that stuck around had been intermingling with, uh, with the pagans, and they had families and everything. And so Ezra, doing what he thought the Bible told him to do, like he did the best with the information he had, they kind of cast out, like they, they purged Israel of all of this pagan influence. And those people migrated over to Samaria, and that became a new people group. The problem that Jews had with Samaritans is like, at least Gentiles don't know Yahweh. Like they, they're kind of off, off the hook because of their ignorance, but Samaritans get it all wrong. And so it's like, they're worse. Like they're an insult to us because they're almost like us, um, but not quite. So there's a, there was a contempt in Israel for Samaritans. And we see for the most part, Jesus's ministry was to the Jews, but every once in a while he had these interactions with Samaritans and it started to subvert those norms and those um, prejudices that his disciples would have held. And so when he tells that story of the good Samaritan, and it's like, 
you know, the priest isn't the hero of the story. Um, like the Levite is not the hero of the story, but it, it was a Samaritan. It's like that guy, oh, they're the worst. That's the response that they would have had. And so if Judea is the people that are just like you. Um, Samaria is that those people over there. Your second calling is to those people where you're like, oh. And maybe as soon as I'm saying that, you know, who, you know who I'm talking about in your story. Samaritans make you feel uncomfortable. Samaritans, that you have contempt for them. You turn your nose up when they walk in the room. And you're like, how dare they be here? How dare they think that they're allowed a seat at the table? Those are your Samaritans. And the subversive thing is happening with Samaritans is whenever a Samaritan walks in the room, you realize that maybe you're not as loving as you thought you were. That's what Samaritans do to you, right? Um, the other category that Jesus uses is enemies. And an enemy is so anyone who causes you to question who you think you are, whether because of their direct attack on you or just by their, your, their mere presence. So our first compassion is to be able to come alongside of someone to say, me too. Like that's a powerful form of compassion. But the second equally powerful form of compassion is to be able to come alongside of somebody and say, I have no idea what that must be like, but I'm still going to be present with you in it, okay? Because I think it's really problematic when we think compassion is just about being able to see ourselves in other people because it's just about us, okay? And if, you only, if compassion is just going, well, I have to wait until I find myself in your story before I can open my heart to you or I can love you, um, what happens is that you end up limiting your capacity to be a loving person. And then when you love them, you love them with an agenda. I'm going to love you to make you more palatable and to become like me. That's what happens if we only live out of that first form of compassion. I'm going to love you until you look, think, feel more like me, and then I can just love you better. I need, I need to absorb you into my way of doing things. And that's, where, again, where we see in the history of evangelism kind of that colonialist mentality of like, I'm going to show you the love of Jesus that I know in a way that you become more like me, not necessarily more like Jesus. Um, this happens to me a lot, like with homeless people, for example. There was a season when we were meeting at Sat Comedy Club downtown, um, and a lot of them would show up uh, to church on Sunday evenings. And the Lord really convicted me of it because when they'd walk in, I just, you know, you'd kind of have the, oh, what? What? Okay. All right. What are they doing? And everything, you're just automatically suspicious because you've told, been told all these stories about like what homeless people are supposed to be like or whatever it might be. And the Lord had me in, this, in that season. I'm not, this is not a prescription. I'm not telling you you need to do this. It's like every time someone asks you for money, you're going to give it to them. And you're going to go to the ATM and you're going to take out money and you're going to give it to them. And I hated it. Because what did I think? I'm thinking what you're thinking. Well, they're just going to use it for drugs. They're just going to buy alcohol, right? And maybe they would. Like, again, I'm not even saying you should do that. But I'm saying there was something in my heart that I didn't like. Because whenever a homeless person walked in, I realized I am not nearly the loving, compassionate person that I would like to think that I am. And that's what happens often. Samaritans, they offend us. But in doing so, Samaritans invite us to shed some of those prejudices and those biases that we have so that we can learn how to love better. Um, and when we learn how to love our Samaritans, those enemies start to become genuine friends and our capacity to love is enlarged, not because we see ourselves in the other person, but precisely because we don't and to say, I'm able to come alongside of you and love you anyway. So let's take another couple minutes, and I want you to think about that. Who is my personal Samaria? What's a group of people that you have contempt for? Maybe it's a category of person, but it might also maybe you have contempt for people who are weak or lazy or uh, conservative or liberal or old people or 
you know, little kids, whatever it is, like you have, who are the people when they walk in the room, they just make that kind of person makes you feel uncomfortable because it's inviting you to see something about yourself that you'd rather not. So same note, who is your personal Samaria? You're, you will never feel like you're ready to cross the border into Samaria. Like Jesus is probably just going to push you. Because, it, you know, it's like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, you know, to learn how to love your friends, like the rewards are obvious. Like if we only stay in our personal Judea and we just love the people that are just like us, great, but we don't grow there. And he says, when Jesus says like, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what he's saying is at some point, he's going to invite you to go and to love those people over there. And a lot of times those people are in the church. Like they're on the other, they're in the other aisle from you, or maybe they're at the first church of whatever down the road, the ones you'd rather not associate with. Like, even as Jonathan was like so beautifully showing us last week about unity, like you don't get to decide who's part of the church. I don't want that responsibility of being the gatekeeper of who's faithful and who's not. But like, yeah, like those people that you see in the news, the the proselytizers, like on the the street corner, like the church that does whatever and you disagree with them, like those are your brothers and sisters. And that sucks. It sucks. But guess what? You have to love those people too. Because in loving those people, you might shed a little bit of the ego, like the egocentric, mindset that you have and that false sense of superiority that you carry. So you're never going to be ready to go to Samaria, but you will know that moment as you're learning to listen to the voice of Jesus. He's going to give you that time and he's going to go, it's time to go. Yep. You see that weak person there? You see that person that you have contempt for that you'd rather not associate with because you don't agree on the same political minutia or whatever? It's time. And you're going to go and you're going to love that person, not because they're like you, but because they're not like you. And as you love them, you're going to have new revelations of who I am because I love them more than you do. So the more that we learn how to love in places that are not like our own, the more we're able to transcend our categories of who is or isn't worthy of love. And the more that we learn to inhabit our true identities as being in Christ. 
So when you learn to love in your personal Samaria, you learn what it means to be the beloved of God. And your identity will begin to shift away from all of these temporary markers that we carry. When we make our identities about our personalities or about our tribal allegiances or whatever those categories are that we hold on to in Judea, like as you have to break those things, as you're offended by the love of Samaria, it's inviting you to go, well, what if my real identity is not based in my performance, achievement, all these surface things, but my identity is based in being the beloved of God? Because that now you're beginning to live from a deeper place. You're living from this incorruptible place. And the beauty is that the more that we embrace that sort of understanding of ourselves, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, go to Samaria, love people that are not like you, learn what it means to be my ambassador to people that you have offense with. And the cool thing is, the more that we learn how to do that, there are fewer and fewer boundaries uh, between, or like, you know, dividing walls of hostility. There are fewer dividing walls of hostility between us and other groups of people because we're so rock solid in understanding our own belovedness that we're able to offer that to other people with less and less prejudice and bias. And that opens us up to that final category of being able to go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to invite the, uh, the worship team to come back up. See, in Matthew 10, that Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, don't worry. He says, don't worry about the Gentiles. Don't worry about the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see this kind of final commission from Jesus before he ascends. And this is Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They were very stuck in, still in that kind of tribalistic thing. And that's what we want. It's like, Jesus, when are you going to come and make everybody like me so then I can feel like I have this belonging and I love, like I can love these people because they're just more palatable to me. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus' final commission to them is to say, you're ready, okay, you've learned what it means to love people in Judea, and now I'm saying it's time for you to go. And the more that you encounter the Samaria, and then there will always be another Samaria and another Samaria, but the more that you learn to love in those places, the more you're going to break down all of that bias that you hold in your heart, those, that egocentric way of living, and you're going to become just more adept at learning how to love. And that's what evangelism is. It's just learning how to love people with the redemptive love of God that transcends all of these dividing walls of hostility that we live in. So here's what I want you to do. You're going to turn to the person next to you, just groups of like two, maybe three, and you can move around if you need to do so. And we're going to take some time, and I want you to share, to offer that vulnerability and go, this is my Judea. These are the people that are just like me that I can come alongside of and say, yes, me too. Uh, and I want you to share your Samaria, which is, I think, really humiliating to do. But I hope that you're all able to receive that vulnerability from one another to be like, these are the people that I have contempt for and I need to learn how to love better. And after you share, I want you to, to, to lay hands on one another and to pray that same commissioning prayer that Jesus is praying over the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, to go out when you don't feel ready because you will never technically be ready, um, and to love with the love of God and to see what happens. So I want you to go ahead, turn to one another. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to share, uh, to pray over each other, and then I will uh, help us to transition to worship uh, by praying over all of us.
Introverts, your Samaria is extroverts. So share, don't, don't sit there and just look really holy by yourself like you're in the third heaven, like talk to each other. Begin to pivot to praying for one another if you haven't already started. It's good to share, uh, but we want that empowerment from the Holy Spirit to be able to, to step out and to love this way. If you're praying, you can continue to pray over one another by all means, but um, for the rest of you, I invite you to stand as we uh, continue in worship. 
um, that worship is the place that, that kind of builds us back up, reminds us of who God really is, to remind us of who we really are, to empower us to go back out into the world and to love well. And so, Father, we thank you for this, this pattern that we see that Jesus offers us because he cares for us in our growth. Lord, we confess the times that we have falsely believed we need just a little bit more training or we need more, uh, a better ranking system or whatever it might be, and then we'll start doing the work. Um, and Lord, we recognize that we're never ready or qualified in the, th the ways that we think we are. But King Jesus, teach us how to love our Judea well, that when we feel that gut level instinct to draw close to somebody because we know that story, that we, you would give us the words to speak, uh, to love them redemptively. And Jesus, teach us how to love our personal Samarias, those whom we feel uncomfortable with or we have contempt for because of our own prejudice, because of our own bias, because of our feelings of superiority. Lord, would you give us uncomfortable opportunities to contend with Samaritans this week? Give us opportunities and divine appointments to love people that we do not particularly like. We thank you for this pattern, Lord. I pray that you would continue to do whatever it is that you might be doing in this room. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Stand, let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.